There's almost no excuse not to if it's really something you're passionate about. If you have the story in mind and the drive to get it done and an iPhone, you can make a really great story. You can literally edit the entire film on your iPhone. And I think that you could have it distributed, again, from your iPhone or anything. So my point is, there's never a better time. This is LA is Good For You, Tencel Town, a podcast about the art, science, and business of filmmaking. Each week, we bring you untold stories from the people who make Los Angeles the global capital of entertainment industry. Join us for your Hollywood 101. Preparing this week's episode has been a joy. That's because we got to watch Beers of Joy, an award-winning documentary which examines the history, science, and unique personalities of the beer world. David Swift, who wrote and directed the movie, talks to us about what it takes to film across multiple locations in Europe and to secure a distribution deal in a crowded documentary market. He also talks about beer. Let's just start at the beginning. Um, How did you get into filmmaking? Was this something that you always wanted to do? It's a good question. A good start question. I was very, very passionate about film as a young person and um, was fortunate to get into USC's film school, which is a fairly decent and very well-known school. Uh, known for kicking people's butts. So it was a very intense uh, number of years there. And I think it was something about, uh, I've been a storyteller my whole life. So I think that's, uh, it's a blessing and a curse being a storyteller. I think if you understand that um, the root of anything I think interesting in humanity has to do with story, whether it's literature, whether it's human interaction or drama, to me, it's all about story. So whether it's writing, directing, or producing, it all comes down to story. That's, I got in because I love story. Did you do any storytelling, whether it was writing or filming something or putting a little performances for, you know, for your parents when you were growing up, when you were a kid? What an amazing question. Uh, really? Yeah, I didn't even think about that until right now. I just, that's not going to translate well. I, um, my brother and I would put on little plays in our house that we would write. I completely forgot about that. That's amazing. And I think that led to later on me making, uh, writing short stories. Uh, my brother's also a screenwriter. And uh, I guess it was sort of in my blood, yeah. Both my mom and dad, I think, were very gifted in their writing uh, and very creative people. Do you remember any of the stories that you wrote? Any subjects that you wrote about when you were younger? Uh, I'll borrow one from my brother, Mark Swift, who wrote something called The Adventures of Schnookum and Schnickles or something silly. And that went on for days. I can't draw. He can. And I think we collaborated a little bit. And these were pretty uh, silly monsters. On, on really ridiculous adventures. We also took some Star Wars figurines and created these little sketches. The Ben Kenobi show. He had a talk show. Ben Kenobi. That's hilarious. Yeah, that's bad. Well, you mentioned you you, um, you went to um, USC and it, that was a you did a BA um, at the School of Cinema and Television. Correct. Um, I haven't been to film school. But how is filmmaking actually taught at university? What classes do you have? Do, is there a lot of practical stuff, a lot of theory, lectures? What does it look like? Interesting. Uh, at USC, I can only speak to that. I don't know other schools, but I'm very proud of my alma mater, our alma mater uh, for Lauren. Uh, it's a lot about mythology and history and literature that then becomes um, a base And depending upon whether you study critical studies, which is more about the study of film, which I didn't do, which is great though, you have to study that, becomes about if you're gonna be in production, which I was, it means you tend to wanna be in directing or writing. And now since I've left, they have writing programs. So based on your specialty, you're gonna learn a lot about sort of the basics of of narrative storytelling, the great history of, uh, you know, 
Greek narrative and uh, Middle, East, Middle Eastern studies, and it's much broader than practical filmmaking, at least for me, uh, before you get into the actual mechanics of directing, editing, writing, cinematography, um, and then the study of understanding great films. So there's an enormous amount over those years of study of other films, you know, and not just, as you might imagine, it's a very uh, big Hollywood kind of film school. It's not really blockbusters that you're studying as much as the great art. And one of the best things I think you'd learn, speaking for SC and at other film schools, is non-sync sound. So you'll wind up making movies for years, or at least many semesters, with no dialogue, meaning you're trying to see how far can you tell a story, how deeply, how emotionally without dialogue, which sounds like it's awfully limiting. It's incredibly challenging. So tell me a two-minute story, a three-minute story, a 15-minute story with no sync sound. If you're Even as a writer, not as a director only, if you start telling stories without dialogue well, the dialogue can only make it more deep and more powerful. So they make you do that first. How does it work in practice? Is it um, do you get a group of students together to make a movie? There's different levels, so I hope I get the numbers right for anybody listening. I think it's Cinema 290 is one of the first things you do where you're making back then. Kids won't know what this means. Super 8. They wanted you working on film, so it was Super 8 films. Uh, those are five minutes, seven minutes, nine minutes, somewhere in there that you're doing everything yourself. You're casting it, you're writing it, you're directing it, you're shooting it, you're lighting it, you're editing it by yourself, and you're turning those in. Um, not only to your peers who are super gifted and very, very talented, but to working top directors and producers and writers in the business who have no problem being super direct with their criticism. And then you wind up going into a class called 310. I think that's where you're collaborating with one other person. And I think that was a video class, not a film class. And then eventually there's something called a 480, which is almost like a graduate. Before you graduate, those are large scale, not by movie, movie standards, but <clears throat> excuse me much more advanced, someone's a director, someone's gonna be producing, someone's editing it, someone's lighting it. And you kind of, most of us vie for that director spot and I was fortunate to direct those. So when you were at school, were there any um, lecturers, any professors who inspired you in particular? We were fortunate because SC has such a great alumni network that some of the biggest filmmakers of all time are graduates. And I won't say weekly, but every other week or something, we were hearing from a Steven Spielberg or George Lucas, Robert Zemeckis, Ron Howard, um, John Singleton, who just passed away. So it's just an on and on, and not only alumni that go through, but um, a lot of other filmmakers that are really active in the business. Uh, there was a very old professor that when I had him, he was in his 80s. I'm going to get his pronunciation wrong. I think it's Edward Dimitrik. It's all syllables. There's like literally no, uh, no vowels in that. He worked with some of the biggest names from the 1930s, 40s, and 50s as a director, taught things to me that I don't think, or to any of us, are practically taught today. So if an actor or an actress, an actor we can say today, um, maybe is having a tough time in the take, you don't want that person that to feel vulnerable, you want them to feel comfortable and safe. So rather than cutting and trying to explain, you know, I, I think I need this or I need that, which I think any of us would do as directors today, he would have already had someone on the set holding, you know, I don't know, something loud, a can with rocks in it or a brick or something. And if he's giving a signal to that person, when an actor or actress is struggling, I think he did this with Marilyn Monroe, 
uh, he would nod to that person who would drop this thing and make a huge noise and he would scream, cut, cut, you know, why would you do such a thing? Get out of here. Everybody take 50 and I can't believe it. And he would spend time talking to Marilyn about other, Marilyn Monroe, about other things. And, you know, it's, this is so wonderful to hear about your mom or your history or your family. And then he would give the signal that they're rolling and he would start doing a line with her and let's, let's practice, let's work it out. And he's starting to get a take from her that way. So it's the, that's not in a book. You know, and he would teach about the ways in which actors, if they're not comfortable, are never going to emote. They're not going to. I mean, I acted quite a bit in some pretty poor films. I'll, don't go into that. A long, long time ago. But uh, acting is difficult. And I think that one of the things I learned is to respect the process of an actor. So I don't think any director, even from a technical perspective, Ryan Johnson, who did the last Star Wars film, great writer, great director, um, doesn't know a lot about the technology of it, but that's not his job. His job is to get a great performance, tell a great story, and move the audience. So for us, I learned a lot from a long line of great people that came out of that school. That's wonderful. <clears throat> so a little bit more about your background with USC. Do you think going to film school gave you an advantage entering the industry? That's also a good question, Lauren. Um, I do. There's a funny word or expression that it's used in LA called the uh, the SC Mafia. You may have heard that. I don't think that's uh, not true. I think it is true that we, nobody beat it into us, but for some reason we tend to come out and want to work with our sisters and brothers from that school. They tend to be really, really great. Um, NYU likes to mock us. We don't mock back. There's no point. There used to be an expression, Harvard, ha Harvard hates Yale, Yale doesn't care. Or the other way around, something like that. So for us, um, that is something. And then when you get into your career and you meet someone and you think that person's great and then you find out they're from SC or from that film school, it's like it's an immediate bond that's deeper than it should be. It isn't really fair. There's so many people at the highest uh, points in this business that um, did go to SC. So there is sort of a built-in want to help each other out kind of thing. And so you worked for the Steven Spielberg Shoah Foundation after college. And can you tell us a little bit more about what that foundation is and what you did there? I will. It's a very long story, which I'll condense for you to the uh, salient points. So uh, I was working at uh, an agency at the time called CAA, Creative Artists, uh, in an agency training program uh, to become an agent. I don't know why, but a lot of us got out of school and were exposed. It was explained to us that one of the best ways to learn quickly about the, and I would recommend this, the depth and the breadth of the film industry is to get into one of the big agencies, CAA, William Morris, which is now William Morris Endeavor, UTA, places like that, Verve, our agency. Um, and you do get a lot of knowledge there. I was there one day, and again, this is a perfect question back to your USC Mafia, uh, got a call from a fellow filmmaker who is now, I think he's won Oscars, Emmys, Peabody's, John Mole. Uh, M-O-L-L. -L. He is great. And he had called me and said, hey, knowing me from school a little bit, or at least through mutual friends, we have this opportunity. All I heard was Steven Spielberg, Amblin, you know, can you meet? And at that point, I think everything started getting blind and, you know, numb and dumb. And I faked being sick, left, went to Amblin, uh, had a chance to meet with Steven and with the group there, which is amazing. But the truth is, I stopped listening, and it's, it's a little bit of hubris when you're young and you go to SC film school and you think, I can't believe it took them a whole year or two to find me. I, I'm this, which is horrible. I hope to say I'm the opposite of that now with a lot more humility and respect. But as a kid, any of us would have this big ego like, of course, it's Steven Spielberg. Of course, finally, they found, which is so stupid and embarrassing, frankly. Um, but during their talking about 
instead of listening to the important points, I just heard we're making the world's biggest movie. It will be the world's longest movie. It's going to be in multiple languages. We're going to be doing it over two years. All I could hear was, this is Steven Spielberg. You're at Amblin and you're going to get to work with these people. And I was out of my mind excited to do that. That's all I heard. So when it was, can you take the job? Absolutely. This is back in the days when you have to beg CA to let you go. I won't name names, but it was if you weren't working for someone who's our biggest client, you can't leave. You can't do that, even though a lot of friends over there uh, and went to do that. And I think I was there writing um, at the Shoah Foundation for weeks before I realized it wasn't quite making sense. I would hear I would get firsthand survivor testimonies from the Holocaust. And I, I was using that, I assumed my small brain as research for this film we were making. So I'm writing scenes and I'm working all this stuff out, turning in lots of drafts and people were giving me these weird looks like, what is this guy writing? I don't get it. And it soon became made known to me that this is the Shoah Foundation. We're making, um, first of all, a documentary I was fortunate to help with uh, that James and June made. But the, the funnier story is that I didn't really realize this was um, not a feature film that Stephen was doing, but an endeavor that involved a lot of survivor testimonies, 100,000 hours plus. So I was laughing, and then I had to explain to them that I said, you know, I'm not I'm not Jewish. Is that a problem? Please don't fire me. They were laughing. Uh, I think it was actually Stephen who said, no, I knew that going in. I think the term is goyim. And he just said, no, it's interesting to have a non-Jewish perspective here. So I was fortunate to be there a couple of years, uh, learned an enormous amount, not only about what it's like to work directly with great documentarians and great filmmakers and survivors of the Holocaust who have these great stories to tell. And I think if Stephen and that Shoah Foundation hadn't done that, that would have been lost forever. So I learned a lot. I don't know if it was Stephen or someone that worked for him. Someone literally said at the end of my term, like, you have to go out and start making movies. If you don't, you know, you'll be here or otherwise, other places forever and you'll never really do it. So that was a nice kick out of the nest. Do you think it inspired you to sort of specialize in documentaries? I'm learning that you know more about me than me today in this interview because all these things are so obvious, like I'm being psychoanalyzed. Maybe. I don't know. I think that what happens is the business is so tough, and I've told Lauren this uh, offline, that you don't know where you're in is. So you, everyone thinks you get out of school and you go do this thing. I think that there are hundreds of doors that are always opening and closing, and you just don't know which one you're supposed to go into. So when certain doors hadn't opened – uh, you wind up taking another job to take to pay bills, and I wound up working at Universal for a while on the theme park side, and then for Rick Caruso at the Grove for a while, and then I think one day you wake up and you realize you want to do something different, which I did, and made that announced or announced that. Um, but more specifically, I think that you don't realize what it is that, and I'm like with you now realizing that might have been an inspiration that I work with really great documentarians, and so good work on the questions, both of you. <laughs> But one of your first credits on IMDb, which I um, which I saw, was an animated children's movie. Yes. It's a legend of Hawaiian. You got it right. Yeah. Nice. Um, so what was your role in this? Were you a writer, director? Uh, did you put the story together? Did you yeah. produce it? So I have two amazing partners, uh, Scott Owen and Mike Cooley, and our company is 111 Entertainment. At the time, I'll tell you what I can tell you because a little bit of it has to do with a business we work with, but someone we knew from King's Hawaiian, the bread company, so good, so dangerous. Um, they came to us and wanted literally to try to grow their business at a certain time of the year. And so they were really big in, around Thanksgiving, obviously, and around Christmas time. Those are times that people have big parties and get a lot of bread and that sort of thing. <clears throat> Excuse me. And 
They wanted to grow their business and asked us, and I don't know why, we were at Universal in what we like to call a bungalow at the time. It's actually a trailer, but it was awesome before they wiped all those out at Universal. Um, they asked us how we would do that. And I said, well, maybe we all talked about it and surmised that we could do a television special, which wound up becoming an animated feature. Um, to get people to know these characters and this brand, it has very little to do with King's Hawaiian bread, but they're all about Hawaii and fun and adventure. And so this was a great fit for them. So they funded us to write it. We had intended to direct it and produce it. Uh, the funds did not allow that. This is the nature of the business. So we were thrilled with the uh, full and original script. I'll say that. Eric's a friend. Hello, Eric Dickens. Uh, and Chad Don Vito over there now. But they um, they needed it in such a quick way. So an animation takes usually one to two years. I think they had six or seven months. So the results are the results. It's hard to do the right level of animation and do it effectively. The script had to get made smaller and smaller and smaller until this very big, uh, our agents like to call it the, the new Goonies. It was a huge adventure comedy that wound up becoming a very small film, which wound up being not easily able to do with good production quality. So we're thrilled that we did it. And it's an amazing thing. It didn't win a Razzie. We we're very disappointed. <laughs> um, but it was one of the first things we got on there in terms of Today. How did you come up? I, I watched the trailer um, on IMDb. How did you come up with the story? So uh, Scott Owen is uh, my writing partner and usually directing partner as well for our projects. Mike, too. Uh, but we put our heads together to come up with the zaniest story. Again, the original is, is probably worth a good read um, where you start talking about these little creatures called the Menahune. But we like to base things in reality. So there are Menahune, if you believe the legends. There are night marches, if you believe the legends. There are gods and battles and warriors and things that exist. So we start in the reality, and then we try to get it as ridiculous and silly and fanciful as we could, especially because it's for kids. Did you find that it's easier to write for kids or adults? I think kids are harder. I think they can see through. That's a great question. Uh, I think adults are more forgiving, and they want to go on a they're less literal about things. I think kids, their imaginations are so strong and they they can smell through nonsense pretty quickly. So harder. So in Hollywood, we hear about multi-hyphenates a lot. So being an actor, director, producer, all in one, would you consider yourself one? And do you prefer one over the other? Hmm. Another good psychoanalysis in here. I think that there are people who are pure directors I think there are people who are pure writers. And I think that when you find people who are writer, writer directors or writing directors, it's special. Um, you begin with a vision and you're able to create characters, use dialogue in a way where it's not simply words. It's doing it dialogue. This is back to our training and our work, at least for me and Scott. It needs to do three or four or five things if it's just a line that isn't telling me something more about the character, what he or she wants, the interaction with the other person, the scene, and progressing the story. I think when you have a writer who then winds up directing, it becomes more clear, the vision, more pure. I think if you look at, at least for me, a J.J. Abrams or Ryan Johnson, um, Robert Zemeckis, people who, George Lucas, people who write and direct, I think tend to be bigger, Quentin Tarantino, uh, I think they're better filmmakers. I think that that doesn't take anything away from um, folks who don't write, but you get a bigger vision of James Cameron, people who begin the idea and are able to translate it and then get what they intended on screen. I also think that, um, I'm off topic, I'll come back. I also think that 
directors who specialize. I spent years studying acting because you had to at SC to go back to that. They force you at a certain level to learn how to act. I think it helps if you can work with actors like that, having acted. So to wrap up the question, um, being a writer, director, producer, former actor who should probably be smart and stay out of that, uh, I think it's easier when you can do more. And then by making this documentary with Mike Cooley and with Scott Owen, which we'll get to, I'm sure, um, you learn more about the shooting process, the editing process. And um, I think it's harder to be a multi-hyphenate, but if you have the passion for it and then the drive to do it, it makes a difference. You've mentioned that you were an actor, so I definitely want to talk about that. Darn. Uh, <laughs> um, did you ever consider acting career? Or did you think you're going to be more into storytelling and directing? When a certain teacher, I don't remember whom, but she had suggested to me in the director's program at SC that if I really wanted to take this seriously, I should really study acting. Uh, and sort of was forced to take an acting class, which then became more serious, which took me to, wow, I could really get into this. The next thing I knew, um, I don't know if it was the next year, I wound up acting in Connecticut at, I guess it was the Eugene O'Neill Theater. I won't age myself and say which president was here then, but let's just say that the there were Russians and Soviets that came over on an exchange program with the U.S. and USC, I think, and NYU and a couple other schools were asked to select sort of their best students. Uh, and we got to train with the Russians here and then went to the Soviet Union at the time, or maybe it was Russia, uh, for a bit. That was a knockout experience. So I think I got real good real fast by learning from much better actors. Um, but again, it's just it's the way those doors open and the timing. Those doors didn't open for me as quickly as other doors did. So who knows? There could be hope in the future. Do you think this experience um, helped you in now working with actors and directing them? Yeah. More than anything else, I, and I tell my partners this, I think, um, well, I'll get to documentaries in a minute, but I think not having the ability to work with actors is an impediment to any good director. I think that either they learn by doing directors who haven't acted. Uh, I've, I've read about a lot of directors, some of them from SC, some not, who were afraid of actors because they realized, like, I don't speak your language and I have a very clear idea of what I want. I don't know how to get it. So there are some actors, great actors who've wound up teaching directors how to work with actors. And I think it's an advantage if you've acted, certainly to be in front of the camera. George Clooney, anyone I think who's done great acting, right, and then gets on the other side of the camera, I think it's a, it's a, it's a much more intimate experience working with actors that way. Because it's hard. If you haven't done it, I don't think it's fair to ask someone else to do it. Um, okay, let's talk about Beers of Joy. Beers of joy. One of my favorite drinks. And first of all, congratulations. It's a documentary uh, about beer. And it, 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 you've won quite a few awards for this documentary, right? Yes, we're fortunate. It's a tough... Uh, documentaries have gone, uh, thanks to Netflix, thanks to Hulu, thanks to Amazon. They've become um, super popular again, which is wonderful. Uh, but it also means it's a very competitive category. So to win that many awards for Beers of Joy is uh, heartwarming. We're thrilled. So talk us through it. How this production come about? Uh, was this an independent effort? Was it a part of your, you know, working um, within your company and doing it as sort of a sponsored branded content project? It's definitely an independent film. Uh, a very long story to tell that. But we were at Sundance a few years ago and uh, Jim Holleran from Inheser Bush and other people were there sort of joking about somebody should make the world's greatest beer doc. And then I realized pretty pretty soon they weren't they weren't kidding. Um, and with a lot of support from them and not a lot of input, they simply said, can you guys go out and uh, 
again, jokingly, make the world's greatest beer doc. The good news is not a lot of people had made beer documentaries, so our, our competition wasn't too great. But uh, Jonathan Hack, who is uh, one of the producers on the film, who works for a very small division at Anheuser-Busch, used to be called uh, – I think it just changed to the Beer Collective. It used to be called Craft or something. And they um, – no, the high end. I'm sorry. My brain is – trying to remember that. So the, Jonathan Hack from the high end was uh, one of the people who spearheaded this project. And then instead of saying, do this, do that, uh, they wanted someone to go out and really tell the story. And to, again, to not do anything but tell a good story means you have to find great characters who have great objectives, who have something to lose or risk. It's a great, great a basic tenet of storytelling. Um, and we were able to find them. And Popular Mechanics came aboard and some other private investors. And it really became a two-year epic journey of shooting all over the U.S. and all over Germany and all over Italy. Uh, it's just a marvelous opportunity. We're really fortunate to do it for me and for Mike and Scott. How did you come up with the story? Because it's quite an unusual way that, you, that storytelling works in this particular documentary. It, it doesn't talk about history of beer. It, it concentrates on several individuals who are going through a process of um, taking part of us the ch Cicerone. Ch I want to say Cicerones because you're, that's the... You're that's saying it right if you're saying the word in Italian. So I believe it's Cicerone. And um, we just sort of changed it in this country to become Cicerone. But go ahead. Um, so yes, tell us about how, how you build that story. Uh, Scott and I, and with a lot of good input from Jonathan, who is all things beer, very knowledgeable, knows a lot of people, we just sought the best characters. We went through so many different folks... Uh, in this country and overseas, trying to figure out who's doing something I haven't seen before. Well, you know, you guys see movies, are involved in the business, understand it. Um, great stories are compelling. So we tried to find people who are unusual, compelling, uh, up against challenges. So we knew that for Joe uh, in the film, which I won't give away the ending, and Ryan in the film, I won't give away the ending, um, we're on this insane journey to become the 13th master Cicero in the world. There are only 13 at the time. You know, a master sommelier in wine, for instance, might have 150 in the world, which is already a tiny number. But in the beer equivalent, not 150, not 50, not even 20, there's 13 in the world. So to watch these guys go on that quest and then another storyline to watch Tanya Cornette, who happens to be one of the best brewers on earth. Not that it should matter if she's male or female, but people mistakenly or, or rightly or wrongly think that, oh, it's a man's world. She is, you know, kicking butt and taking names and winning so many gold medals. She's, as you see in the film, probably lost count by now. Uh, her story we thought was really compelling, wanting to find this um, hard to discuss. It's hard to explain how uh, unusual her skills are. So when she said, I want to make the world's great Berliner Weisse, we were like, we're all, we are so down with that and finding these people in Germany to inspire her to do more and finding Jürgen in the end, which you'll see in the film. And then finally, this uh, very zany and lovable uh, homebrew chef, Chef Sean Paxton, is both a great chef and a home brewer. I think he's the only one quite like that. So we thought that was four very complete, unusual stories that are never meant to intersect, but sort of do thematically in the film. How did you find these people? I mean, how much research does... A lot. How, yeah. How do you even do this research? Is it just literally just Googling interesting people who do something with beer? How it's does a it little work? Bit, yeah, it's a great question. It's a little bit that, and it's a little bit talking to people who know more about the subject than you. So Scott knows a great deal more, I would say, than I do about beer and about the subject matter and the, the titans in that industry. Uh, Mike, too. 
but we little by little started finding one person who would corroborate something. We'd think, oh, I think Tanya's really great. And they'd say, oh my gosh, she's so gifted. She's so talented. That checks a box. Like that seems to make sense. You get connected to people like uh, Dr. Pat McGovern at the University of Pennsylvania. Which makes me think that uh, we're fortunate even to have him on camera. We shot a lot with him. And of course, this one of the saddest things about uh, whether you're directing, producing, writing, uh, Mike Cooley, our partner, did a tremendous job editing the film, shooting the film, producing it with us. But one of the things that we would um, lovingly argue about in the edit bay is how difficult it is cutting things. So my point about Dr. Pat and these luminaries is you shoot these wonderful scenes and you, you can't let that go. It's amazing. And then you wind up with a two and a half hour film Nobody needs a two and a half hour film about beer. If there's another cut, I'm sure we'll put out there. But um, it allows us to continually affirm that we found a good character, a good storyline. And it's funny, there's sort of this convergence at the top. If you picture going up a mountain, um, it's a very wide base. And the higher you go up in something, meaning to the heights of any uh, study, there are fewer people. And so there's this, I call it convergence at the top. Um where those folks all seem to know each other. So then when you start saying, well, we're working with Dr. Pat, we're working with Dr. Charlie Bamforth, oh, he's sort of known as the Pope of Foam, and this is the Pope of uh, Beer, or different folks that you see in Germany, um, and you start to pick up momentum. So people want to help, and you find people like John Townsend, who's working with our chef in the film, or uh, one thing leads to another, and then it's sort of a gut thing. So you know, Scott and I, writing and directing this piece, have a vision for what we hope it to be, I think that to a question you asked earlier, I think documentary filmmaking is much tougher than um, scripted narrative filmmaking. I think you have more control and you know exactly what you're seeking. It's on the page and you're going to get it when you do a narrative film, which we do plenty of and we can talk about. Uh, but documentary, you have to script everything and then you have to be present in the moment and realize I may be throwing most of this out to find a more interesting story or storyline. And that happens all the time. So you co-directed this um, documentary with Scott. And I want to ask you about this because sure. um, to me, um, directing a movie or a documentary, it's always been sort of as a solo endeavor. How do you direct something? Can you even agree on the vision? If Scott were here, he would say no. No, I'm just <laughs> kidding. Uh, Scott and I have a, a wonderful blessing or curse in that uh, we're very symbiotic and we, I think, uh, complement each other's strengths and weaknesses. Scott doesn't have any weaknesses, so it's perfect for me. Um, we collaborate very closely. We kind of read each other's thoughts. There are times that um, Scott will be very much writing down a great bunch of things that we should talk about, and then I'll have a different set of questions. Many times we'll write the same questions. Um, one of us usually takes the lead in interviewing, um, although it's collaborative, so it changes. And sometimes Scott will see much that I would have missed, and we'll go in and pick something up. Um, directing is a technical art, but it's also, again, I talked about the working with actors. I think pulling things out of people um, is something you have to learn to do, to warm them up, make them trust you, be vulnerable yourself. I'm called the crier. It's not a, I'm not something I'm proud of. So if, if we need someone to cry, we can pretty much bet I'm going to be leaning in and starting the crying to get someone to cry on camera. I'm 99% I'm, I'm not kidding. Um, and so the partnership for us is writing it together and then having a vision the day of together, blocking what we're going to shoot and working with Mike, who was my Cooley, our cinematographer and editor. And we call him our Hulk. You know, we have a Hulk. That's Mike Cooley. Uh, we find ways throughout the process to collaborate together and with Mike too. So it's great. And we had um, what we call, my wife hates this term, but a bunch of really great, uh, very gifted shooters. 
They're really cold shooters. Don't say that in an airport, by the way. I learned that. Are the shooters flying with you guys? Are they flying with us? Why is everyone looking at me? TSA pulls you aside. They're like, you could really stop saying shooter anytime. That'd be great. Um, but they're, they're gifted cinematographers in their own right. And then along the way, you wind up learning so much that the group becomes smaller and you can communicate more quickly and it becomes hand signs because you're not going to be doing a lot of you're not doing retakes with documentary very often. You're trying to stay in the moment. These are not actors. That's certainly something that uh, Scott does much better than I do. I tend to want to work with actors, with people in documentaries like they're actors and say, no, say it like this. No, do it like that. Uh, that's that's not a good idea. So if Scott were here, he'd tell you I do that. It's a real problem. I'm working on it. So you filmed this in so many locations. Was there a lot of preparation involved? And how long did it take to shoot these? Wow. Two good questions. Um, Lauren, throw in the tough questions. We spent a lot of time shooting this film. I'll give you a number, which is an estimate. It's probably wrong. We might have been shooting 90 days or 100 days. That's a lot for a full length, big boy, big girl Star Wars film. Uh, I don't I don't know how many documentaries, unless they're shooting for years, hit that level. If Mike were here, he would tell you how many gigabytes, terabytes, excuse me. It's a gargantuan amount of terabytes to shoot that much. Um so we shot over the course of two years on and off. Uh, we shot all over this country and all over Europe. And uh, the lesson learned there was uh, we like to overshoot. It's called a ratio. So how much you shoot, shoot versus how much you use, that's a film school bit, would be your ratio. A low ratio means you're very efficient. And that's not necessarily good or bad. And a high ratio means you're um, self-indulgent. I, I don't want to speak for Scott in saying we're self-indulgent, but I learned along the way that I think I'd rather have more than less which makes Mike crazy. But then we wind up in an edit bay with those tough decisions. But many times that'll save you being there and thinking, um, I wish we had. And then you're scrubbing through footage and realizing, oh, thank God we got this or we didn't get that. And once in a while, you'll have to pick something up. But we're very fortunate we didn't have to. Beauty of Joy is two hours long. It is. Our goal was always to make a complete and compelling film with great characters that reach these amazing conclusions and hopefully not go longer than two hours. And the audience will be the judge, but we think we did as good a job as you can do without starting to get into it. We didn't want it to stop moving. The film is, at least the critics we've talked to, it seems to move very quickly from end to end. When most documentaries have periods that slow down um, or they have a very strong political message or they're trying to make you feel a certain way, we didn't intend to do that. So we like to call this the feel-good documentary. I think it inspires people who care about being passionate about something. But at the end of the day, for us anyway... I think that we just wanted to do beer justice, not people knowing that it's a 10,000-year-old beverage. Talk a little, little bit about the history, how important it is to social circumstances, and that, you know, if you talk to Dr. Bamforth in the film or um, Dr. McGovern in the film from Penn, they would tell you, we're not even sure we'd be here as a species if beer hadn't been a part of that. Literally, wine, water wasn't safe to drink, and it brought people together culturally. And uh, without it, I don't know where we'd be today. What was the hardest part when you had to bring this documentary out into the world? Um, did you have any issues with distribution? Was it um, that you had to uh, keep a very tight budget? Um, did you submit it to any festivals? Basically, what was the process after you've had um, the documentary ready? Great question. We were very fortunate early on to have found uh, Gravitas Ventures, who is amazing. I'm not just saying that because they'll hear this, I'm sure. Uh, but they're one of the biggest and most successful documentary distributors in the world. 
Um, we, to be literal and technical to your question, I think we had a 90 second, what's called a play blast. A play blast is just a string of images together with music that kind of gives you a feeling and about a story. So we had written out all of the stories in, from deep interviews with all the subjects and had put that to paper, which I pitched on the phone with my partners to Gravitas with, along with a 90 second play blast. And usually it takes years to find distribution. We had just started filming and they had said, we're in which is unbelievable. We had to tell people that didn't know our partners like, like, oh, that's that's cool. No, it's not cool. This is amazing. This is, that doesn't happen. You're just started. Um, so by the time we were finished with the film, the most difficult part, I'm going to try to hit all of your points, was in having to make those difficult decisions. There's a horrible expression that they use, killing your babies. I don't know why they say that. It's like killing a bird with, you know, two, two, two birds with a stone. It's terrible. Um, but you have to make those hard decisions where we love this and we think this is effective and it's making the story better, but it maybe it's, it isn't needed. So you really only want in the story what's necessary to progress it forward. So you have to make those tough calls. And there's a lot of, between me and Scott, between Scott and I and Mike, or me and Mike with Scott, sort of arm wrestling, not in a negative way, but do we really need this? Is this going to help? Or we love to have it, but it does, it's slowing this speed down. It doesn't fit tonally. Um, we had another question there I'm not hitting. The most difficult part? Festivals. Festivals. So once, it's funny, that's actually a two-sided question. Most documentaries and films that go to film festivals are doing so, unless they're big studio pictures, because they're looking for distribution. And so for us, already having distribution, we sort of had a chicken and egg discussion with Gravitas and our partners saying, Anna Bush and everybody else, we don't need to go to festivals, but it would be great to do it. So are we going to do it? And so we were already out in a national release theatrically, which is also really unusual for a documentary to be released in theaters. We were very blessed and fortunate for that to happen. Um, and then it had already been in theaters. So that disqualifies you from some of the biggest festivals that would say, well, you've already been distributed, which is not necessarily great news. But we weren't looking for anything except a little affirmation critically. Uh, and then little by little, we started with some smaller festivals onto some bigger festivals. We're very fortunate and grateful to have a lot of laurels, not just, you know, one of the best, but many of those laurels, I don't know how many it is now, eight or nine of them, best documentary feature. So that, and especially when it's an audience award, that's incredibly gratifying because it, it isn't necessarily a critic saying something, but it's an audience member saying, we love this film. So it's it's still out. It's still going to festivals. Um, we hope by next year it'll, have, it'll, get, it'll be laurel full. I think now we're up to quite a few, though. That's amazing. Yeah, thank Congratulations. you. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, let's talk about your company, 111 Entertainment. Yes. Um, I read on the website you specialize in creating both, creating both original and branded content. Yes. So do you consider yourself a filmmaker or a marketeer? Interesting. I would say all but one or two things we've done are narrative filmmaking. So we have a film... Uh, that we hope to be in production by the end of the year that was called Mangunga Paul, because it's tough to say the Congolese word, which means the good Dr. Paul. It's now been retitled um, Call of the Congo. They're nodding. They like that title better here. Note to self. Um, and that's with Wonder Film and Original Film. Other SC people like Neil Moritz, who works on my wife's pictures, the Fast and the Furious series, but that's with uh, Original and being pitched on the Paramount slate. So that's something that Scott and I wrote and that we were producing with uh, Mike, our other partner Cooley, and uh, Anthony Samadani and others. So that's that's strictly something that we wrote in the feature world. Um, there's a 
a passion project we've been working on for five years that we hope comes to fruition, uh, a docu-series with the Make-A-Wish Foundation that some of the biggest folks in TV have tried and failed to secure the rights to. I think we did because we knew them well and tried to tell them that you're not telling the true story of who you are. It's other people sort of in a more exploitive way. We didn't do that. Um, and we have... Uh, other projects in the, both the film and TV space that are out there through our agents. So almost all of what we work on is in the entertainment category, I would say. In the branded stuff, that sort of has found us. The world is rapidly changing. We just came from a meeting uh, at the studio right now where brands who do have great resources, aka money, and good taste are starting to come into the space, Anheuser-Busch in this case being one of them, and saying, we don't want branded content. We want great content and it would be cool to have our name on that. So people say, you know, Pepsi did that? Or, I don't know, pick any big brand. The biggest brands are now doing King's Hawaiian is another one. There's, other than one very funny joke reference in the entire animated film, which also got uh, a release and was all over the world. Can't believe it didn't win a Razzie. Hmm. Anyway, uh, but that's there's almost nothing in there about the bread. It's about character. So they did it backwards in that way. So instead of finishing... Uh, a Pixar or a DreamWorks film and then finding a McDonald's or an American Express and having the characters come and you can get them at your local subway or whatever. They were really smart, uh, Eric Dickens and Chad Don Vito at King's Hawaiian, in flipping it around and saying, why don't we create the characters that we will own and make a great story and kids will fall in love with it and not just to sell merchandise, to, to enhance the image of the brand. So brands are rapidly moving into that space. And so the line is a little blurry right now. And I think it'll blur even further with so many different outlets for content. You've got the SVODs, streaming video on demand, which used to be called OTTs, Disney Plus coming online, Apple TV Plus online, every major network, every major um, distribution company, every one of them is moving into streaming. So my point is there's so many outlets for so much content. I think it's inevitable that brands don't sort of sneak in that way. I don't think it's a bad thing. Um, so we have some branded content we've done for big brands and they're on our website. Uh, but at the same time that it was brands coming to us and saying, Hey, you guys are storytellers. We have a story we want to tell. And so we're sort of, we've dabbled on that side, but we live on the, on the entertainment creative side. I think you're absolutely right. I think it's only going to grow. We've got a Quibi. Is it Quibi? Yeah. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce yeah, that. Short form content. Um, which is doing extremely well, even though it's not going to be, uh, launching until 2020. Um, could be big. Could be big. We, both Lauren and I were um, members of Film Independent, so we hear a lot of stories from independent filmmakers and how about their struggles and how hard it is to make um, to make movies these days if you're not part of the studio. Would you recommend this as a path to um, aspiring filmmakers to you know put together a team? You've got your writer, your director. And somebody who can edit and and, and also film, um, create little companies and then be able to also do this sort of non-branded mm -hmm. content, but working with brands. And that way, being able to tell stories, but also have a backing so not have to worry about going and raising money constantly. It's a terrific question. I think that there's never been a better time to be able to create, whether you're writing, whether you're shooting, whether you're acting. Um there's almost no excuse not to if it's really something you're passionate about. If you have the story in mind and the drive to get it done and an iPhone, you can make a really great story. Um, you can literally edit the entire film on your iPhone. And I think that you could have it distributed 
again, from your iPhone or anything. So my point is there's never a better time. The flip side of that is I think you have this rising flood of content. The good news is that I think the audience is usually pretty smart and great content gets found pretty easily. Okay, not easily, eventually. That's a better way of putting it. Um, so if you're a young kid or you're someone who thought, gosh, I really wanted to do this. I never had my shot. Find a story that really moves you, that you think will move others. Tell it honestly and tell it effectively and share it. And one of the questions earlier was what, what, what was one of the toughest things? And I think one of the toughest things is sharing your work because you feel personal about it. You think it might be very strong or emotional for you or resonates with you. And then you're forced to share it with the world and you get your first bad review and suddenly you're staring out windows and, uh, you know, hearing bad music in your head. So bad. <laughs> So bad. But you realize quickly that, you know, you have to make films that you think are the best you can tell. And I, I, ultimately, I think it boils down to story. If you can tell a great story well, the audience will find it. I've got one more question. So you have not read um, Save the Cat, but um, I wanted to, to ask you whether you think structure of a movie is more important than the dialogue and the story itself. Holy cow. She saved that one for last, Lauren. Right, I know. We call it the bomb question, <laughs> not the good bomb. Um, I have two different opinions on that. I was a servant and devotee of structure to such a degree that I would almost call it a point of paralysis, good or bad. Um, so Robert McKee taught me at SC, and his book is called Story in giant block letters. I defy anyone listening to read that in less than two years end to end and understand it. And it's amazing. And I think I burdened poor Lauren with that book. I think she's probably it. using it like a, as I've a weapon it. against yep. anybody. Uh, it's a, But then I, I spent so many years in school, out of school, reading everything I could get my hands on. It's, uh, it's exhausting, but I think it's sort of necessary because if you, and I don't need to know at what point you start forgetting it's there, but if it, if there's a certain basic fundamental rise and fall, where your acts break. So it isn't about on this page, this thing better happen. But if you start looking at the greatest films and the greatest movies and things ever told, they do tend to follow, I don't want to say a formula, but that's a natural way stories are told. So I think one of the best things that I've shared with you before is you can break it down to be as simple as three beats in a movie, any, any story, even a joke, right? Three parts to a joke, the setup, the resolution, the payoff. So you... Get him up a tree or her, throw rocks at him or her, get him back down. And that's basically what you're doing in this. And so for me and for Scott, uh, if I may speak for you, Scott, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a question of introduce a problem. And I've told this to Lauren a few times. Somebody wants something badly and is having trouble getting it. If you find that fits your story, you probably have a traditional Hollywood movie on your hands. Somebody wants something badly and is having trouble getting it. Or a thing happens to this person and as a result of that, his or her life is thrown into chaos and a problem must be solved. Like you start to see these little bits. So while I haven't read that book and to try desperately to answer that very complicated question, I think you absolutely better know the structure of storytelling because it goes back to pre-Bible times. It goes back to the beginning of humanity. And yet at the same time, at some point, it's good to throw that away and say, I understand this 
wave, I don't know if it's called a sine wave, this rising action to a climax and then a denouement at the end where it resolves and there's to beat after. If you don't know those things, you'll have trouble taking. Lauren, of course, is working on lots of different projects and the writing may be the hardest thing because you start to get like you're falling. But if you know the rules and you understand I've got to get from A to Z and along the way these twists and turns are going to happen and breaking a second act in whether it's a screenplay, whether it's a teleplay, whether it's a play on Broadway, the first half of the second act needs to get you to this climax of a crisis and then it everything it seems like everything's going great before it completely reverses and gets to a place so low you realize there's no way out of this before you find that climb up in the third if you don't do those things you're taking an awful risk because humans are from the time we're born and back through our history those are the, the way we want to hear and tell and share stories so without that structure I think you're in uh, dangerous waters. However, at some point you have to stop, which I had to learn over the years, and Scott's great at this. You have to throw that out and say, you sort of have a feel for it. We're this far into the story, I need to introduce an inciting incident that's gonna propel these characters forward. Or I'm at a point now where once you think it can't get any worse, you wanna take it 20 degrees worse. The, the greater the uh, risk, the higher the rewards at the end for a character. Are you sure you haven't read the book? I gotta read it now. <laughs> Last thing I'll say is, and I don't know the name of it, um, there are some Pixar, I don't know, pillars or something. I'll make up a word just for, just to ruin the mic and say P, P, P. But Pixar has a, v, a few different things. You can probably Google and find them. They're sort of tenets of screenwriting or tenets of storytelling, I should say. And they're incredibly effective. And it's and it resonates with everything I learned in school. A lot of those folks um, did go to film school. Some of them went to SC. Many did not. And then people are natural storytellers when they introduce something to you and have your attention right away. So you, that's another last rule I'll say and sign off. Uh, you better you better hit someone right away with your story. I don't care if it's a slow moving European feel that may be different. You better introduce someone or something right away that compels me to want to keep watching. No one has enough time to commit. We have this wonderful technology. We can stop what we're watching. It's not like you're in a theater and you've paid and you're going to stay. And I'm. It's difficult. So. Get right to it. And that's all, folks. You can catch us on Instagram and Twitter at LA is Good For You. Our podcast is recorded at Rosinante Studios in Delray, recommended for all your low-budget recording and sound editing needs.